Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about cool stuff and then I teach it to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Today we are discussing cool chemistry stuff. Stuff. <laughs> that's uh, that's about as well as I can put it. It okay. doesn't necessarily all have a very tight relationship, but it's just all stuff I thought was cool about Chemistry, not just chem. About the elements and the things that they form. Sure. Um, so you talk about literally everything. I in the world guess now. you could call it an episode of superlatives. You know, like those things in the yearbook where they give out the best smile, most mm. likely to succeed. Those are called superlatives. Did you know that? I didn't know that. The, what I it was. That I've heard the word. But... I learned that on a TV show. That might be just an American thing. We never did that at my school, so I don't know. Yeah, we didn't if that's either. a thing people did. Maybe it's just one of those American TV school things that... Sure. Who knows? Um, but what I'm trying to say is we'll do things like, you know, Best. worst smelling element, oh, strongest okay. element, most flammable, you know, just like... Do we have any, those. like, statues or, oh, like, awards to hand out? Oh, I guess I could have done it like that way. Like the Dundies way. in the office. You, you could have given me that idea, like... Before we started recording the episode I've already written. Because that sounds like a, a funny idea. I could have given out like little awards for the, each of these. Or maybe How we could just say they're on an atomic level. And so. How dare you throw that at me at the last yeah. minute. Ugh. That's what I did. So I'm just going to start with this fun fact. Um, okay. Obviously, as you must know, elements build the whole world. So therefore, there is nothing too large or nothing too complex for us to describe it by its elements. Sure. By definition. So here we go. I'm going to read to you a chemical formula. Okay. H, 375 million. It's a few. O, 132 million. Mm-hmm. C, 85.7 million. It's a good amount. N, 6.43 million. Okay. CA, so, you know, calcium. I've been doing hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, now yeah, calcium. So far, it's pretty 1. organic. 1.5 million. Phosphorus. 1.02 million. Okay. Sulfur, 206,000. Mm-hmm. Sodium, 183,000. Mm-hmm. Potassium, 177,000. Chlorine, 127,000. Are you guessing yet what it is? Yeah. Magnesium, 40,000. Silicon, 38.6,000. Mm-hmm. Iron, 2,680. Zinc, 2,110. That's not very many. Copper, 76. That's it. Iodine, 14. Manganese, 13. Um, What is this one? F. Fluorine. Fluorine, that's right, is 13. Mm-hmm. Chromium, 7. Mm-hmm. Selenium, 4. 4. Molybdenum, 3. Okay. And cobalt, 1. 1. Interesting. Do you have a guess at what that very boring to listen to, listen oh. to formula was just... What is that? Well, if I were to deconstruct that, I would say we're highly, highly hydro, like hydrocarbon-centric. It sounds very much like a plant or an animal. I'm going to assume that this is like a human being. At the time of birth. Perfect. And some of those, like molybdenum, cobalt, selenium... Some of those numbers tend to change um, very slightly by one or two, which means nothing. Sure. Or maybe it was a trace, you know, impurity or something, and it shouldn't even be in there. But in general, that's what human beings are. You can break us down into that. Um, So, Everett, are you ready to learn cool chemistry stuff? Absolutely. Teach me something. I'm going to start with fire, as one should. True. Could. Always do. Um, As you can imagine, humans have been obsessed pretty much with fire for about as long as we've been humans. Yeah. Um, Ever since Prometheus, you know, stole it for us, basically. Or Maui, apparently. Right. Maybe. I don't know. We've had this discussion before. There's a lot of mythologies that seem to have this fire fire stolen from the gods for the people. There will be some comparative mythology episodes one day about that and the flood myths and all that. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, Fire brings us heat, light. 
Uh, it helps us with hunting, protects us. It allows us to start cooking food, which is obviously a big game changer. Also looks really cool. Um, I'm sure that was a concern for well, okay. primitive homo back, sapiens. Back when they didn't have TV or plays or books. They just burn things? Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to sit around looking at? Especially in the evening when it's dark. Is that why they burned witches? They were just really bored. They probably made some really cool flames, I'm sure. Um, fire helped us make primitive tools. And then, mm-hmm. of course, later, much cooler tools. That's also true. Which is very important to human's history, as you much must imagine. Yeah. So what is fire? Fire is created by things coming in contact with oxygen. That's basically it. They yeah. just need that and a little input of energy and away you go. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, friction or heat. Yeah. Um, or oxygen, other fire. This is, this is because oxygen is one of... Well, that would be heat. <laughs> <I know. laughs> this is why... This is because oxygen is one of the most reactive elements. Yes. Um, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus declared fire to be the purest substance... He hmm. thought it was the base element from which everything else was somehow made. Okay. I um, mean, there's some flaws there, but okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about Heraclitus. Um, so you can sure evaluate you okay. if he is a person that you should listen to. Okay. He tried to live on a diet entirely made of, of, fire. of grass. Oh. <laughs> no, the opposite type. Okay. Not plant type. Fire type. Well, um, that, okay. Or That's not fire really type. really weak against fire type. <laughs> exactly. He tried to cure himself of dropsy by lying down in a cow barn and covering himself in manure for three days. Okay. And then he was eaten by dogs. The end for Heraclitus. Um, when did so, he do his like scientific research amongst eating grass and being covered know, in manure? Probably before he got dropsy. Okay. I suppose. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure he was all there and like maybe we should disregard his theories there, but interesting all the same. Mm-hmm. Um so let's talk about the most flammable chemical ever made. Um, so just like a little side side road, we're going to go down here. Mm-hmm. I want to start by putting this issue to bed. Flammable and inflammable mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you were confused, they mean easy to burn. Inflammable is the original word. Okay. In the 1920s, the National Fire Protection Association, obviously we're talking about the states here, started encouraging people to use the word flammable instead because they were worried people would mistakenly think inflammable meant not flammable. So they started encouraging the use of the word flammable. I'm pretty sure that didn't help much. (laughs) Well, it might have. Sure. But academics were just mad about how dare you try to corrupt our sciencey language. And Mm -hmm. they like put up a big um, battle, basically, against the term changing, which didn't help. And so now we're stuck with this, like, both words mean the same thing, but it's super confusing. Yeah. um, Which is probably what the Fire Protection Association did not want. But I think that they were on the right track. I think that you've got to realize that languages always change. Yeah. And when it's an issue of, I don't know, saving people's lives. This seems like a really stupid and dangerous hill to die on as an academic. Like, go with the word that's least confusing to people in a life or death situation. Yeah, sure. Flammable. So I'm going to use the word flammable. The most flammable chemical ever discovered is chlorine trifluoride. Sure. CLF3. It was made in 1930 by Otto Huff and Herbert Krug. It can literally ignite anything it touches. Uh, asbestos, Kevlar, oh. yeah, glass, sand, water. When it burns water, it makes hydrofluoric acid as a gas, a gaseous byproduct. Sure, instead of H2O. Um, so that's not something you'd want to be around or inhale. Gaseous hydrofluoric acid should go nowhere near a person. Yeah. Or other living. Nothing, really. I, I just I don't really want to be beside hydrofluoric acid in general. I mean, it's not that bad if it's, you know, diluted. And <laughs> Relative stuff, to but, what, yeah. But in gaseous form, dilution isn't really a thing, so. So, why is it so reactive? Well, uh, fluorine 
is the most reactive element that we have on the periodic table. Yeah. And chlorine is, do you remember, Everett? Also very reactive. The second most reactive element on the periodic table. Okay. There you go. I was like, it's way up there too. (laughs) Meaning they both need much less energy input than oxygen to start things on fire. And they're both like incredibly electronegative. Like it'd be hard. You'd, it'd be hard to make that substance. It would want to break down and, and like react with other stuff very, 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 very readily. Right. So when you put them together, as Everett was saying, the resulting chemical is going to start fires upon contact with no input of energy necessary mm-hmm. whatsoever. Um, the thing that's interesting is that that chemical itself wouldn't actually be going through combustion. It would be reacting with things, making them more likely to combust. Well, no, if you're making hydrofluoric acid, I guess it is going through... Okay, this is interesting. Keep going. (laughs) Maybe you can learn about this on your own free time. Which is what I encourage people to do when they learn a cool thing on my show and want to learn more. Right, 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 right. Um, right. It was never really used, though, because no one could figure out a way to address the setting everything it touches on fire problem. Um, There were a few attempts, though. In the 1940s, they tried to use uh, chlorine trifluoride as rocket fuel, but it just set all the rockets on fire. Um, the Nazis tried to use it as flamethrower fuel, but every time they tested it, it set the flamethrower and the flamethrower user on fire. Um, I was wondering what you had to do to be unlucky enough to volunteer to test those Nazi flamethrower prototypes. Yeah. Uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana... At an undisclosed period of history, because it's apparently not recorded anywhere when this happened. There was an accident involving CLF3. They were moving a ton of the chemical. I mean, a lit- like an actual yeah, yeah. ton as a measurement, not just a bunch. Yeah, um, through the warehouse. It was sealed in a refrigerated cylinder. You see, when they refrigerated it, it becomes less reactive. Makes sense, and yeah. there's a chance it doesn't set everything on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately... I don't know how this happened, that they picked a pretty brittle material for the cylinder because it, it might be the cracked only thing. when it got cold. Yeah. And through this crack came the chlorine trifluoride. And uh, it set everything on fire, shockingly. The concrete floor of the warehouse burned down one full meter before the fire extinguished. So, it, yeah, it ate through the concrete pretty fast. That's, that's impressive. Um, the man pushing the cylinder was actually found um, to have been blown 150 feet in the air and uh, died of heart attack. Probably lucky. Right? I think that is a better way to go than any of the... Yeah. Um, but next I want to talk about fire that we make in our bodies. Hmm. Yes. Technically. Com- by the technical, By the technical sense. Definitions of the words fire. So we talk about burning calories. We do. I've never really realized, no matter how many times I've learned this stuff in school, that burning sugar is literally actually how we get our energy. (laughs) Like actually burning it. I've just never really put that put that together in my brain before. Um, Combustion of sugar. I shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, of course, if you if you don't know this, the way we find out how many calories is in something is pu- putting it in a bomb calorimeter and exploding it. Yeah. Um, Fun. Right? Good job. I mean, job. you don't see anything. Good job. It's yeah, still, I know. You just seal it and there's like a pop. It's yeah. like, whoa. Like, oh, yeah. Sweet. But I it's mean, still kind of fun. Yeah, but like they let university students do it, so it's clearly not that dangerous. So oh, I did it's not in high school cool. as well. In high school? Yeah, you're with, lucky. Um, yeah, in chemistry, I you're did lucky. In high school. But yeah. I went to a self-directed high school, so I don't think they wanted individual kids just messed around with stuff like that on their free time. I wouldn't say it was individual. It was like lab partners of three. We were in a group of three or four, yeah. or something like that, and, and we were we were. Testing the various calorie loads of different... We never got to do experiments in high school on anything. I just think yeah. they just couldn't figure it out at my school. All I remember is we did marshmallows and rice and wheat grains. Very cool. I don't remember the various calorie amounts between them, but, you know, I, I blew them up. Mm. That, is, that is the point, <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, remembering that combustion is oxygen reacting with a substance... To make carbon dioxide and, and water. water. 
CO2 and H2O are the byproducts of combustion. With hydrocarbons. Um, yes. Which is what sugars are. Sugars Correct. are entirely made of C's, H's, and O's. Yeah. That is what a sugar is. Well, I'm just saying Arranged that. in a pentagon or hexagon shape. Yeah. There you go. That is what a sugar is. Um, glucose is the smallest sugar. Our body breaks other sugars down into this smallest unit. It's uh, C6H12O6. That's that's what we got. That's our kind of base unit here. So we're going to talk about respiration. And no, breathing is not the only part of respiration. Mm -hmm. Respiration begins with breathing in oxygen. There's our oxygen for our combustion reaction. Cellular respiration specifically is the part of respiration where in our mitochondria, our bodies use combustion of sugar to make us energy. Uh, Every animal does this except one and now two, actually, which I will come back to in a minute. Okay. So the C's and H's and O's are broken apart. Some are made into water, some are made into CO2. Which we expel. Dissolves into your blood, you exhale it. So you're actually exhaling the sugar that you eat. Not all of it, obviously, but it's kind of interesting, isn't it? That you're exhaling the food that you ate? Yeah. Well, yeah, the the combustion byproduct of of the sugar or whatever you ate, yeah. It's... You're being unnecessarily pedantic on all I'm my sorry. cool facts here. Yeah, it's a great fact. I have nothing to say. All of everything is made up of these elements. So, therefore, I posit that what I said was okay. Okay. Um, splitting up the C's and H's and O's releases energy due to complicated stuff like potential energy differences. Mm-hmm. Other things we won't get into. There's a lot of enzymes, a lot of chemicals involved in bouncing these things around and just doing a ton of complicated steps called the Krebs cycle, which I've had to memorize too many times. And it's one of those things that I just cram last minute and then forget it two days later every time I ever had to learn it in school because it's just, it's just torturous. Um. (laughs) From a chemistry perspective, I'm sure it's much more interesting than from a biological Uh, one, but that's fair. Maybe. I feel like I tried to talk to you about it sometimes, but eh. So basically, all the energy released during these reactions helps our mitochondria to put together a really unstable molecule called ATP. Mm-hmm. And because it's so unstable, like it'll just falls apart at will, basically, which releases energy. Yep. That's where we, you know, fuel our bodies. So ATP is adenosine triphosphate. Phosphorus. Phosphorus is very important. Phosphorus is the group that's going to fall off. One of them. Yeah. Triphosphate. One of them is going to fall off to get ADP diphosphate, which is a much more stable molecule. Um, so you can see how important phosphorus is for our bodies. And now while I was doing all this research, I came across an interesting anecdote, I guess you could say, about phosphorus. It's not related to anything I just told you, but it's about phosphorus. So there you go. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so the scientist who first discovered phosphorus did this by boiling huge amounts of urine in his lab. Must have smelled great. On a very uh, strange night in 1669, he ended up with this gunk, this waxy solid um, that smelled like garlic and glowed a greenish blue. So, you know, even though your pee doesn't glow in the dark, it does contain an element that does. Cool for you. Yeah. Um, his name was uh, Hennig Brandt. He was a German experimenter. And I do not have a great idea why he was doing this. But some have posited it was an alchemy thing. Oh, okay. This yellow liquid. Turn it into gold. Gold is yellow as well. <laughs> They're Seems grasping super logical. At straws here, which are also yellow. Maybe he should have boiled straws. Maybe he um, did. <laughs> that's true. I don't know. I don't know him. Um, so this waxy solid was extremely flammable, and when it was burned, it emitted this like really blinding white light. Yeah. And so he named it phosphorus, which is from the Greek for light bringer. Yep. He eventually started selling it because um, he couldn't afford to buy any more urine. 
couldn't afford to make anymore either? Um, oh, no. Okay, so here you go. He somehow kept his production methods a secret, but I don't understand how because, no, he needed to procure tons of urine for this. Like, literally tons. 60 gram sample of phosphorus took him five and a half tons of urine to make. So, wow. no, he couldn't just use his own. Okay, fine. No. He, this was it. Yeah, so somehow he's buying a bunch of urine and no one knows how he's making phosphorus. What did they think he was using the urine for? <laughs> I don't know. So, we're going to come back to that one, and actually now two, animals that don't respire. As you can imagine, if they did not respire, how They're do they make plants. energy? <laughs> No, no, animals. And this is not a trick question. These are animals. It seems very true. animals. No. In 2010, scientists discovered something that they didn't think existed in animals that don't depend on oxygen to breathe or do anything. Um, so three species of these, what are called lorisiferins. There's okay. other lorisiferins, but these three were discovered new species that don't breathe. They were discovered deep in the Mediterranean Sea yeah, in okay. completely anoxic, so no oxygen present yeah, environments. Yeah. Um, until this point, we thought only bacteria, um, like certain microbes, could survive without right. oxygen. We thought yeah. that was the only. Those aren't animals, by the way. So. Uh, correct. Um, so that was cool. And then. Okay, but ne- what kind? Of, what kind of? Describe this animal to me. Like, is it Lorisiferin like a, is? Is it like a tube worm or? It's not a worm. No. Uh, it's just like this deep sea, like, it kind of looks like a plant, but it's not. Okay. It's like a deep sea thing that's just rooted down there and... Rooted in place, move around. The, like, young larval juvenile forms can move around. I don't know. They don't do much. They're very primitive. They're just... Okay. They're very, very, very tiny... Very tiny. Um, yeah, there's not much to a lorisiferin. Okay. Um, but now, now it's more than just one. There's a parasite called uh, Henegoya salmenicola, hmm. which is distantly related to a jellyfish. It lives in the muscles of salmon and trout, and it causes little white nodules known as tapioca disease. Oh. Gross. Um, it's, fairly descriptive. it's a 10 cell parasite, so it's smaller than many of the cells in our body. Okay. So just like lorisiferins, it's very, very tiny. Probably is easier to power your body on a different energy source when you sure. don't need much power. This it makes sense. Um, so the parasite itself, by the way, is not a new discovery. Okay. We know what this for a while. Just the fact that it's... Yes. Anaer- so, would you call it anaerobic as well? Sure. I mean... A lot of anaerobic, actual anaerobic organisms, if they were exposed to oxygen, are, like, injured. So, I don't know if I would call it. Okay. But but I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there is no exposure to oxygen. I don't know. Um, but the thing is, so, they, they sequenced its genome. And they realized it was missing its mitochondrial genes, which means no mitochondria, which means it can't be respiring. Um, they don't really know how the organism gets the ener- its energy. Right. They think, maybe... That parasitic, like like a parasitic microbe, because there's some that do this, they literally just steal ATP from their host organism oh, somehow. I see. Yeah. Um, as for the lorisiferins, there is absolutely no consensus about how they make their their energy. There are a few ideas, but there's no consensus whatsoever. Okay. Um, let's segue back here to the concept of fire inside our bodies after that little detour. Um, why? Is it not dangerous to be constantly setting fires inside our bodies? And and can it be dangerous? Um, is spontaneous human combustion actually possible? It's a lot of questions you have, Everett. Um, but I will answer <laughs> it, it them. Is. No worries. No worries. Uh, no, we're definitely not in danger. As you, as you may know, um, the reactions happen at a really small scale and they're spaced out far enough so that we're not lighting fires. Um, yeah. It is combustion, though. It is combustion. You know. Spontaneous human combustion, I find as a prickly subject, because a lot of people do think it's possible. Yes. And argue for it. And many others do not. Uh, And the reality 
is that in most of the detailed cases that we have of theoretical spontaneous human combustion, if there's enough detail in the story, we pretty much always find a reason. We pretty much always, there's a well-explained source of ignition. Like, you know, cigarettes, living room fireplaces, uh, person was drunkenly passed out with a cigarette. Like, there's there's some very obvious cases or causes most of the time. But there are a handful of cases that remain unexplained. Theoretically, there's a baby in India that keeps setting itself on fire like five times in its life. I don't know. Theoretically. Allegedly is the word I'm going to use. Okay. Allegedly. Um, so here's the thing. How could it happen, right? Because we can't posit this scenario without uh, a, a possible explanation of what could be going on. Then that would just be like Bigfoot or some ridiculousness here. Sure. Um, not that it's not ridiculous, but to make it less ridiculous, let's talk about how it could happen. The cause would have to be something like swamp gas in your intestines. There are witness statements from spontaneous human combustion cases where just the gut is on fire. The flames are blue. Things like things like this. Okay. Um, which, again, is easily explainable by the fire started some other way. And then, yes, when it burned the person's intestines, that gas, anyways. Uh, right. It's explainable, but... Those are a lot of recurring things in the witness statements. So, phosphine. Phosphorus is back. Phosphine is pH 3. It's a gas produced in our intestines. Mm-hmm. It's not flammable, don't worry. <laughs> but diphosphine. It's so interesting how chemistry works. Phosphine is not at all flammable. Diphosphine is extremely flammable. Yeah. Two sure. phosphines stuck together. Um, as in, it would spontaneously ignite and can and has done in the presence of oxygen yeah. with not really any energy input. It wouldn't require much. So it's energetically unstable. It also burns bright blue. Okay. I didn't know that. The big hitch is that we know of no way and have never seen any sort of process or result. Like, we don't think our bodies have any way or would ever produce diphosphine. It's mm. never been seen. It's never been posited. It's never really been. Okay. Uh, test. Yeah. So if somehow some of that phosphine gas gets jammed together and mixed diphosphine inside a person, maybe that's happened once in history. I don't know. That's the, that's the theory. So what I'm going to say is no, there is currently no evidence spontaneous human combustion can occur, but of course it does remain the remotest of possibilities because you can't disprove a thing ever happening, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, What other elements are working in our bodies? Well, uh, if you remember back to the formula of a human being, you're going to recall very, very, very large numbers for H and C and O. Uh, They make up 99% of our mass. Yeah. Followed by nitrogen, I assume? Yes. I believe so. I don't want to scroll back up. Okay. (laughs) Um, Our DNA is made of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, Nitrogen and phosphorus. Yeah. That's it. Those five elements those five elements make up DNA, the building blocks of light. Like, it's it's so cool. Um, They're also the most common elements on Earth, Common, most common elements in the universe. So? Uh, just... how What a complex thing you can build with, like, five elements. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Iron is part of the hemoglobin in our blood, and we use it to transport oxygen. Yep. When those oxygen molecules get where they're going or needed to be, proteins that are made with things like zinc, copper, chromium, and molybdenum help store the oxygen. Copper is also essential for our immune systems. Manganese helps us build bones, heal wounds, and in our metabolism. Calcium, as you know, builds our bones and teeth, and it actually also acts as like a messenger, like a signal. Uh, Fluorine is important for your teeth, silicone and connective tissue, bones and joints. Uh, Sodium and potassium are really important as uh, neurotransmitters, so your muscles and your nerves work properly. Sulfur is essential. It's an essential element. We need sulfur. Um, Part of your skin and hair. It does a lot of other little things, but uh, phosphorus, as we talked about, makes energy and works in DNA. Chlorine is really important, to actually, to balance our blood pH and in forming okay. uh, T 
teeth, tendons, and bones. Magnesium may be found in really low levels, but it's, it's very important. Uh, over 300 enzymes in your body need magnesium to work properly. Uh, but similarly, over 300 enzymes and a thousand other processes need zinc. Really? So it's vital for your eye health and the growth okay. of your reproductive organs. Um, so those are all kind of the really essential things that work inside of us. Uh, and they try to keep us, you know, alive. Well, poisons try to make us dead. So let's go mm. on to the most potent chemical poisons. Perfect. The this most, is what we were expecting during Poison Squad. The most deadly element. Well, yes, but in this case, these, these things please should not be in food. Uh, polonium is the most deadly element. Polonium is a radioactive element. Yeah. Uh, in 2006, Alexander Litvinenko died of polonium poisoning. This, you may remember, was on the news. I don't necessarily remember. I was like 15. I don't know. I don't really pay attention. 15? Oh, no, 2006. How old was I in 2006? 16? You were age. 16. I was age? Yeah. Did you just say that? Mm-hmm. I was age? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, something about the KGB poisoning yeah. him secretly is, is the theory. Anyways. He consumed less than one one-hundredth of a gram of polonium and suffered an agonizing death three weeks later, being torn apart that whole time by radiation sickness. Right. Um, so radiation spits alpha particles in your body, which rips your cells apart. That yeah. is the easiest way that I have understood what radiation poisoning really does in your body. Um, the most toxic compounds, though, are much deadlier than that. Sure. So dimethylcadmium is so toxic that one one-thousandth of a gram diluted in one ton of water is still lethal. But you have to drink all one ton. They didn't say. <laughs> <laughs> Botulinum toxin H. So there's like A through H, by the way. Okay. And, and they're different. So toxin H is a, is a pretty scary one. Two billionths, billionths mm-hmm. of a gram is a toxic dose to an adult human. In a ton of water. Um... No, no. When you diluted a bunch, then you just inject it in your face. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's what Botox is. That's, that's true, what I'm but... saying. Yeah. So, no, this, this one dilution clearly does a thing because you, you didn't dilute it and put it in your face. Yeah. Sounds a Fun. scary to me. Just please make sure if you ever get Botox, you go to a licensed and trained professional. Don't try to save money when you're messing around with botulinum toxins, please. Yeah. Um, so what about some of the other elements? Too much silver turns you blue. I heard this, yeah. Please stay away from colloidal silver. Yeah. It's a terrible idea. Do not fall for it. How long was it used as a medicine? 100 years? 50 years? Everett, what you fail to realize is that it's still used as a medicine in homeopathy. <laughs> okay. So don't, like, don't right, even. Got There's it. no point. Too much tellurium gives you really awful breath. Too much mercury drives crazy. you crazy. Yeah. Uh, in the 19th century, century, hatters used warm mercury nitrate to pre- prepare their hat felt. Yep. And I know that you know mercury is bad for you. Yep. But if you didn't know, mercury vapors are like the worst form that you could come in contact with. Mercury is just the right size to slip past your blood-brain barrier and get directly into your brain, which is why it gives you, like, shakes and tremors and, dry, like, basically makes you crazy, um, which is, of course, the origin of the phrase mad as a hatter. Yeah. Which, which is... it is rumored is where the mad hatter and Alice in Wonderland That's came right. from, but may not be oh, truthful. Oh, no. I'm going to go with that. The website... I read all had the disclaimer that that may be an apocryphal tale and not actually. I want to uh, believe. I also want to believe I'm like it. So I'm like molder in the X Files. I know the truth is out there, and <laughs> this is the truth. I'm okay with it. I'll, t- I'll I'll go with it. Speaking of poisons, how many bananas would it take to poison you? I would like you to register your guess. Let's let's say how many bananas in one year. Do you think you'd have to eat before you would be poisoned lethally since bananas oh. are radioactive, by the way, everybody? 
Yeah, from banana poisoning. Um, I'm going to go with 1,862. All right. We'll lock that guess up in the vault and talk a little bit about why banana was a radioactive first. Because okay. I'm sure you're all wondering. <laughs> and uh, as everyone knows, bananas are full of potassium. Potassium can be radioactive. Mainly, yeah. potassium is um, an atom with 19 protons and 20 neutrons. Mm -hmm. But in 0.012% of cases potassium has 21 neutrons yeah this form is super unstable it's gonna fall apart which emits radiation it's gonna kick off on the neutrons i thought it was an alpha particle i'm confused i don't know i still don't understand what alpha particles are and all these other things are um the physics side of these that's tough for me okay. um but in the end what we get to is the fact that as a joke, originally, because scientists are hilarious, they created the banana equivalent dose, BED, which is a scale of measurement of radioactivity. Oh, so bananas are used for many scales, is what was, you're saying. Yes, banana for scale. Exactly. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, the banana equivalent dose is the amount of radiation you get from eating your average banana. Okay. And... Now it is actually used for reals to describe the radiation levels of different foods. Okay. Bananas included. Yes. Bananas are one. <laughs> one. But one banana equivalent dose is a very low level of radiation. Okay. It's, about, it's about one 1,860 seconds of a lethal dose. Dose. You, you have greatly overestimated the banana equivalent oh. dose. Um, you'd have to eat 5,000 bananas a year to get radiation poisoning from bananas. Okay. So if you love bananas, do not despair. Please do not exceed 14 bananas a day. I was going to say, well, 14 actually, is probably safe, actually, 15. No, 14 is not safe. 14 is, is the amount that would get you to 5,000. So please do not exceed... 13 bananas a day. 13 and a half. And don't take medical advice safe. from me. Yeah. If you need to, cut that last banana in half. Only eat 13 and a half. The other half is fine for tomorrow. Maybe just take Sundays off. Oh, okay. That would be also a way to curb Everybody your has intake. to rest once a week, so. Your body has Sundays to heal from all the radiation. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about something cool? Like the most explosive, explosive. Mm-hmm. Explosions. Okay. I I don't know if I'm describing this correctly, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but from what I read, explosions occur because a really unstable substance is falling apart yeah. and arranging itself in a more stable way and releases a lot of energy from this breakdown. And then additionally, you have like a small mass of solid or liquid expanding very quickly um, into a large amount of gas. So this sudden expansion is the explosion, and it's caused by the energy released by this substance decaying. Yeah, often it's an, Something un, like un, that. Often it's an unstable substance, but that isn't actively breaking down. Once some of it starts to break down and either radiate or or, or whatever it might be, you're talking, you start a chain reaction. You're talking about the best explosives. The most explosive explosives would fall apart as as easily as possible yeah. and have no stability whatsoever you understand yeah so you're talking about things that would be practical for use and i'm going right. to tell you about the thing that is the most explosive ever which obviously makes it incredibly impractical for use okay. um so the most unstable chemical ever created thus the most explosive mm. is azido azide azide <laughs> I don't really know what this is. It's made up of 14 nitrogens and okay. two carbons in a okay. tight kind of branching ring. Yikes. <laughs> it uh, it has the same problems as the most flammable substance. It's really impossible to use for anything as it goes off at the slightest provocation. Yeah. They really tried hard, but honestly, it exploded when they exposed it to water. It exploded when they moved it. 
It exploded when they breathed on it. And it exploded when they shined an infrared light at it. Just like the beam from your TV remote control. That made it explode. So it was just not available to be useful for anything. Um, No, the trick is, if you want to explode something with it, you just have to set up your lab at the location that you want to be exploding. (laughs) It's a long con. (laughs) It is. So, um, strongest acid ever made. Everett, you did a good job at this when we were talking about this earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll let you tell the people what you guessed. Um, yes. Because you're so close to being right. Yes. An acid, in basic terms, is something that drops its hydrogen atom or some of them in water. I don't know if you want to say an acid in basic terms. Oh, am I being confusing? <laughs> I didn't mean to make a pun here. Um, in, in simple terms. Okay, there you go. <laughs> These uh, free-floating hydrogens, they're positively charged. Um, so they're going to pull electrons towards themselves or be pulled towards electrons. You know, one of those. And that's actually how acids damage things. So any yeah. substance that has more loosely bonded electrons can be pulled apart by these acids. So, for example, our cells. Correct. So usually, a lot, of, a lot of hydrocarbons. Usually, things like glass and plastic have mm-hmm. really tight, strong enough bonds that acids don't react with them. Because they're silicon. Which is why, in Breaking Bad, he told Jesse to get the plastic tub, but Jesse was all like, "Absolutely, right through that. I'm going to put this in my ceramic bathtub." Bad, Bad idea. idea. So that's why you listen to someone that knows chemistry when you don't know anything about science. That's just a general yeah. piece of advice for everyone. Just listen to the scientists that, yeah. um, anyways, Which that are trying also, to show you how to dispose of drug dealers in acid. There, there was a long time that uh, it was thought that hydrofluoric acid was the strongest acid because it ate through glass. But when it was eventually discovered that it's not the strongest acid by, by pH level, um, it just happens to react with glass. Now I have to look up how it does that. And it's not pH level. You've forgotten your chemistry. pKa? or Yes, you're right. pKa. Acid strength is the measure of how willingly the acid lets go of its hydrogen. Mm -hmm. This uh, scale that, that we use, the pKa scale, is kind of similar to the way we measure earthquakes. Yeah. In that each number on the scale is 10 times bigger than the one before. We're going up and down by an order of magnitude, 10 times. So, So um, but this scale works backwards. This scale works backwards in that the lower numbers are the more strong acids and the higher numbers are the weaker acids. Yeah. So just to be clear, make sure we're on the same page. uh, A two is 10 times weaker than a one. Correct. A three is 100 times weaker than a one. Strong acids can actually go negative yep. on the pKa scale. Uh, so an example of a, of a one, let's say, is chromic acid. This sets fire to living tissue on contact. Uh, in, in the late 1940s in Britain, there was a serial murderer. And he was probably the most famous serial murderer in Britain after Jack the Ripper. Okay. Um, at least at the time. He was dubbed both the vampire murderer and the acid bath murderer, which is why we're going to talk about him. He was convicted um, of killing six people, and he was hanged. But he did maintain he had killed a whole lot more people, and they just didn't know about it because he did just a good, really good job dissolving the bodies. So the ones he was convicted of, he also did dissolve their bodies, but somehow was convicted. I didn't really... Sure. I didn't do too much research into this. <laughs> um, so he used a concentrated sulfuric acid that was a minus three on the pKa scale. Yeah. There is a class of chemicals called super acids. Yeah. They have absolutely no interest in holding on to their hydrogens. No. So, for example, perchloric acid, which is HClO4, mm-hmm. has a pKa of minus 10. So that's 10 million times stronger than that concentrated sulfuric acid. Yep. And now, Everett, the strongest acid in the world, what is its pKa level? Well, my guess had been minus 14. And I was was quite confident in that guess. Um, 
It is it is the strongest super acid. Yeah. Triflic acid, CF3SO3H, has a pKa of minus 14, which is 100 billion times stronger than that concentrated sulfuric acid, yep. which dissolves bodies like no problem. Most sources will say the strongest acid is actually, see, I lied to you before. I missed one. Fluoroantimonic acid. Sure. At minus 19 on the pKa scale. 10 quadrillion times stronger than concentrated sulfuric acid. They use it sometimes for etching electronics, but not for much else. Oh, okay. Cool. But we still have yet not gotten to the strongest acid ever made. Hmm. There is an acid so strong, we've only been able to synthesize it once ever. Because, you know, the stronger the acid is, the harder it is to put together in the first place. Uh, If it wants to lose its hydrogen that readily, sometimes it's almost impossible to stick that hydrogen on there in the first place. Correct. So, in 1925, a chemist managed to make helium hydride. Oh. Helium being the least reactive element. On the periodic Ever. table. Yes. Yeah. So. Really? Helium hydride? <laughs> one time. He made it. So what do you guess the pKa? Don't look at my screen. I'm not. The pKa of helium hydride is. How did they get the hydrogen on there? Do not ask me. But he did. That sounds impossible. Um, I- I'm going to go with m- m- minus... 28. You're off by several quadrillion. Um, it's minus 69. Holy cow. Minus 69. Cow. Not compatible with life. <laughs> with, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. The rarest elements. So to be clear, we're, I'm only including the first 94 elements here. Sure. Not all 118 because the last... Uh, 24 are synthetic elements that we have to make. So yeah. obviously they don't exist until we make Never them. Never observed gonna... naturally. Yeah. Astatine is the rarest naturally occurring element. There, It's believed that there's only about 25 grams of it at any one time in the whole world. Okay. Proactinium, used in nuclear physics research, is one of the next most rare natural elements there is a 125 gram sample owned by the UK Atomic Energy Authority, and that's it. Wow. Uh, most expensive element. In 2017, the Pink Star Diamond sold for 71 million US dollars. So it weighs 12 grams. That puts it at 5.9 million a gram. Wow. And as you know, diamonds are made of. Carbon. Right. So carbon is in the running for most expensive element at 5.9 okay. million per gram. All right. But, All right. But since carbon also sells for like pennies when it's like charcoal briquettes or something. Right. We're going to talk about a few other ones too. Just to. Yeah. That, no, that, no that one may have a. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very a QI. If you one. haven't watched QI quiz show that one gave me qi vibes technically incorrect (laughs) yeah plutonium Mm -hmm. is worth eleven thousand dollars per gram but nowhere near as expensive as those elements we have to synthesize ourselves Uh, yeah sure so the most expensive element is californium one near hollywood Everyone always talks about how expensive it is down there. So That's right. Um, one, we use it inside nuclear reactors to trigger things. Okay. So it's A, extremely dangerous and important, and B, we have to make it ourselves. Yeah. So those two factors combine uh, about $27 million per gram. Sure. Yeah. Most conductive element. Do you have a guess? Hydrogen supercooled? Silver. But it's too expensive. Okay. So copper was a thing we used in everything to yeah. conduct. Um, but wait, here comes carbon again. Because in 2004, we discovered that graphene yeah. is a thing. So what, what happened was they shaved graphite down 
and you know graphite I in, sure do. in your pencils and such. Um, the shavings they stuck them with some scotch tape. That's highly technical. And ta-da, graphene. What graphene is a, is a layer of carbon, only one atom thick, okay. arranged in hexagons. It looks like chicken wire. Yeah. If you can picture that. Um, it is 200 times stronger than steel. It's transparent. It can act as a filter to get salt out of salt water. And okay. it is more conductive than silver. That's incredible. So carbon. Carbon is the most expensive. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Carbon's the most conductive. Carbon, carbon is, is the, the, most the coolest element in the world. It is. I yeah. know that it seems boring, but it's really not no. if you look into it. Carbon's um, amazing. But... Since metals, we thought, are the only things that conduct electricity, then what's up with graphene? Electricity. Okay, but yeah, go. Okay, go for it. <laughs> Obviously, there's yeah. Uh, you go for it. This is your show. <laughs> well, it's not really. You just refuse to write an episode. <laughs> it is kind of my show. Um, electricity is basically the movement of electrons mm -hmm. in the same direction, since, yes, electrons are always moving. Always. Um, metals allow electrons to move through them easily. Yeah. The more easily they allow the movement, the more conductive they are. Correct. Elements on the right side of the periodic table mm -hmm. conduct less well than elements on the left side of the periodic table. Um, that's basically because elements on the right are more condensed and densely packed together and there's just not r as much room. They're pulled together basically by all the electrons because they so, have extra protons. You need extra protons, you have extra electrons, there's just not as much room, it all condenses together and doesn't allow you that free travel. Yeah, and the ones on the left-hand side, for the most part, have just started new valence shells become exactly. stable it's so nice room. to like kick off the electron and just have a complete shell blow it on the right hand side they really want to hold on to electrons and complete valence shell mm, i see the explanation i read made it seem more like just because as you move to the right you're adding more protons and more protons means more electrons yep. which draws the electrons closer in it does that as well which allows less space to be in yeah Cool places. side note is as you move across a row in the periodic table, typically the element gets smaller, or the atom for that element gets smaller yes, as the what, electronic cloud exactly pulls in close to the nucleus. Yes. And then as you get to a new valence shell, as you go down a row, it gets bigger again. Yes. It, it's fascinating. That's exactly it's really what cool. they were trying to explain in the reason that conduction happens better on the left side of the table. Mm -hmm. um, carbon is on the right side of the table yes carbon is not a metal no it's also a great so what the heck yeah. because carbon is not conductive in any other form correct absolutely correct at all so graphene as i said made up of hexagons each carbon is bonded to three other carbons which i'm traveling i don't understand how it's a hexagon then but whatever no no okay so it makes a hexagon right but yeah. then they're uh, oh, hexagons. I totally see it. Yes, I can picture it in my head. So it it's, a corner, so it's a corner. So it's a corner in three hexagons. Way. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, anyways, carbon. Carbon has four electrons available to bond with. Correct. In graphene, only three of them are bonded. Yes. Which means each carbon has an extra extra electron not being used, and. It can move from atom to atom, which allows for a flow of electrons. Correct. And the reason that graphene is actually better than metals at conducting the electron movement, like, do you know this, Everett? I think so. Go for it. It's two-dimensional because it's one atom thick. So in metals, you'll find some electrons kind of wander off to the left and right and off of the directional flow. Sure. But in graphene, there is literally nowhere to go. They just have to just go from left to right or right to left, wherever the current is flowing. They have to just follow that. Which means graphene is the best conductor and carbon is somehow the most conductive element. But only under these very specific circumstances. Yeah, right. 
Strongest element is next. Hmm. You obviously know the answer to this. I do. Strongest. Can lift the most weight. <laughs> Benches the most. I guess I could tell you the line Thorium. that's... The line that's next in my thing, which is that strongest element is the same as hardest element. Oh, okay. Now do you know the answer? No. Oh. Carbon. Yes. <laughs> It's always carbon. Carbon's amazing. Yeah. So I in, learned, but in a diamond format, I would assume. Right. But I learned some really cool stuff about diamonds. I feel like school failed me on this topic. I was misinformed about diamonds my whole life okay. until right now. In school, you probably learned about the Mohs scale at one point. I think you did in like grade five or something. The, the, the scale, scale used to measure M-O-H-S. Mohs scale. Okay. Used to measure the hardness of minerals and stuff. Like you scratch okay. things with other things and sure. see which scratches the other one. You yeah. know, you know. Okay. okay, we did this in school. Tooth enamel is a five. This is a one to ten scale, by the way. Okay. Tooth enamel is a five. Iron's a four. So theoretically, you could bite iron and not hurt your teeth. But you'd have to make sure nothing else is in there and it's yeah, kind of... Not, like, not an iron alloy. We're talking not about... Not steel. Iron, iron. Just iron. Yeah. Steel is 7.5, if you were wondering, which yeah. is an iron alloy. Yeah. So don't bite steel. Uh, ten out of ten is the diamond. Right. Diamonds are made of carbon, and they're the hardest minerals, so carbon wins this one as well. But if I were to ask you how a diamond forms, what were you taught in school? Long periods of heat and pressure. But what does it form from? What kind of carbon? What are we talking here? I I I don't know what type of carbon. What? Fossils? Okay, but that's... Plant matter or something? That's the thing. That's the common explanation that, like, kids get. Fossilized plant matter, whatever, gets compressed underground for a really long time and turns into diamonds. Heat and pressure. There you go. But what they fail to teach you in school is that this heat and pressure is to the extent that this isn't having happening underground. Nowhere... This cannot happen in the Earth's crust. This occurs in the mantle. Not the crust. Okay. So as you remember, probably, the crust is the outer layer of our Earth. Yeah. The mantle's the middle. The inner's the core. Yeah. Uh, there's n- Diamonds are made hundreds of kilometers into the Earth's upper mantle layer. Okay. So we are talking about pressure hundreds of thousands of times more than in the crust. We are talking about temperatures the same as the surface of the sun. Yeah. And... Diamond crystals are then brought up to the crust by volcanic eruption. Sure. Which is where we find them. I had no idea. I didn't know the specifics. That's cool. Plants. This is the other part of the story that is wrong. Diamonds take billions of years to form. I, again, did not know this. And as you may or may not know, we have only had plants on Earth for about... Just like only 500 million years. Yeah. Okay. So, I don't know. It's just carbon. They just make themselves from carbon. I don't really know. Okay. I don't find it too hard to assume that there's carbon deposits down the mantle or carbon can leach out of other... Yeah, but it has to be things that that were alive billions of years ago, which is not much. Why does it have to be out of things that are alive? You can have just carbon... That's true. ...deposits. Um... But what I feel like is people always say things like, you know, coal. Squeeze a toll. Yeah, Anyways, okay. coal turns into diamonds. Coal I does put, not turn into diamonds. I knew coal that, Coal does though. come from fossils. Yeah. Coal does not turn into diamonds. Correct. Common misconception. But diamonds do decay into coal in a few thousand years after they're formed. Really? If we don't find them, they're going to decay into coal. And huh. so in 2003, some Japanese scientists said... If diamonds turn into coal, could we turn coal into a diamond? Yeah. They took some coal and put it into what basically is like a super high-powered pressure cooker. Um, They built up pressures even higher than what are found in the mantle. Much higher. They created a hyper-diamond. And yes, yes, that's what I said. Hyper-diamond. Uh... We know hyper diamonds are going to be above a 10 on the Mohs scale. Let me clarify. The scale is a 1 to 10 scale. Right. We broke it. Um, <laughs> but we haven't been able to measure the strength yet because they're too tiny. Sure. Uh, the coal gets compressed so much 
that it ends up being only a few millionths of a gram by the time it turns into a hyper diamond. Wow. So, yes, carbon is the strongest element. Hyper diamonds are a thing. And the second strongest element is boron. Boron. Yeah. Borax crystals and all those things that we talked about in Poison Score. Boron, borax. Cool stuff. Okay. Yeah, I would never have guessed boron. Um, just to kind of wrap up, I want to talk about the longest experiment in history. Because it's kind of chemistry related and I found it interesting. Ever, did you know, before I told you this a few days ago already and spoiled it, that asphalt is a liquid? I did not before then. It all made sense when you said it. But I did not know that beforehand. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I thought it was a solid, but it is not. So in 1902, a scientist at the Royal Scottish Museum poured some hot asphalt into a glass funnel and left it there. And for over a century now, it's been very, very, very slowly, very, very slowly dripping. It has dripped twice now onto the dish below. It's exhilarating. Mm-hmm. And then in 1927, they set up a similar experiment in Brisbane, but they used a little bit runnier asphalt just to make it a little more exciting, you know? Yeah. This one has dripped nine times already. And the last drip came out in 2014. Okay. What do we do for the next drip? Uh, I don't know. But if you would like to know, you may go to www.thetenthwatch.com. Uh-huh. And you could watch a live camera feed of the asphalt not dripping. But you could also... Forming its next drip. Yes. But you can also watch like time-lapse videos of drips forming. So then it's not so annoying. I would suggest that if you decide to go check this out. Um, Here's some other fun facts that didn't fit into any of my categories and I want to say them. Liquid oxygen is blue. Okay. Helium is cool. Liquid helium is the most fluid liquid in the universe. If you take a cup of liquid helium and you stir it one time, it will keep spinning forever. It's gotta be... Helium won't turn into a liquid until... It is very, very cold to be a liquid, but it does not defeat what I'm saying. Okay. It doesn't feel friction, won't be slowed down by the container ever. It also defies gravity. So it will climb up the walls of containers that it's in. Because it really doesn't attract, self-attract itself to stay together. Like, it doesn't stay together at all. Okay. And so, um, air pushes down on it. It kind of slides to the side of the container to get out of the way and then just starts climbing up the walls. kind of just breaks apart from itself and just, like, climbs up and over. Just creeps up. Nicotine can break down into seven different chemicals depending on how each person's body processes it. Um, which might explain why it's more addictive for some people than others. It can metabolize into a more addictive chemical. Um, this depends on the type of, so the CYP2A6 gene. That one. Depends on the type of that gene Hotly that you carry. Hotly contested gene, yeah. As well as your diet, your age, your sex, pregnancy or not pregnancy, and medication uses. So that can all change the way you metabolize nicotine. Okay. Cool. Uh, the sweetest chemical. Hmm. is called Lugduname. I'm probably saying that wrong. C18, H16, N4, O4. It is 230,000 times sweeter than table sugar. And it is so sweet, it induces almost instantaneous vomiting for most people if they try to taste test it. Oh, good. Um, the darkest chemical you all probably know already is Vanta Black. It absorbs up to 99.965% of visible light. It's crazy to look at. Right? Absolutely Even on crazy. the internet. I, uh, yeah. In person, I'm sure it would be really trippy. But, yeah. Um, the worst smelling chemical. Sulfur. It's a tie. No, but they both have sulfur in them. <laughs> I didn't say element. Yeah, I know. It's either theoacetone, C3H6S, or methanol. No, methanethiol, which is also called methylmercaptan. I don't know how you say methanethiol. Methane? Methanethiol? Methanethiol? How do I'd I say it? I'd go with the latter. That'd be methanethiol. Sure. Methanethiol, C- methyl, merc... Methyl mercaptan's the other name. Mercaptan, okay. CH3SH. So both of these chemicals have odors so terrible that A, you can smell them from a really great distance, and B, they can cause physical reactions like vomiting, dizziness, mass loss of consciousness... 
and even death from smelling the odors of these chemicals. Okay. Um, Methanethyl is actually the chemical responsible for the asparagus pea smell. Oh. But, you know, not high concentration enough to kill you or anything. Um, Last but not least, in my fun chemistry facts, you have heard of neon lights. Yes. I have. For sure. I'm pretty sure you have. So the thing is, is that most of these lights are not made with neon at all. Yeah. I feel like you already know this. So, you know, don't spoil it for the people. Neon belongs to the noble gases. It sure does. These are not inert as has been taught to me in the past, but they're very, very close. It's, they're very close. It's one of those things where it's like a you white have lie. You put them under the right experimental yeah. conditions in which to react. But whatever. They're named noble gases literally because they're just too noble to interact with any of those other peon elements. They're just so happy <laughs> they're just being with themselves. Haughty. <laughs> a nice, complete valence shell. If you trap a noble gas in a glass tube and then you pass a current through it, mm-hmm. it's going to start vibrating. Yeah. The electrons, I don't get this part because, again, it's too over my head, but the electrons emit light somehow because of the way they're being pushed by the electricity. Okay. Pushed and falling again. They get pushed and then they fall back to where, I don't know. Yeah, so Something they like don't that. actually want to leave the like the atom, but they're being excited almost out of their or- orbits. And so what happens is you apply energy, the electrons excite and almost leave, and then they drop back down into their orbital shell and emit um, a different a wavelength, light, a yes. burst of light. Yeah. So any other gas at this point would start these reactions and then everything would rearrange, become stable, and you'd get no more light. Mm-hmm. But because noble gases don't react, they keep producing that light and they yeah. never form a stable product. So yes, neon lights glow, but specifically neon glows red. Yeah, so... Only when you when you look at quote unquote neon lights, only the red ones are neon. Correct. Helium glows orange. Yeah. Argon glows blue. Yeah. Krypton green. And xenon turquoise. Yeah. It was simply that we discovered neon first, and so we just called them all neon lights. Yeah. But that's also the reason why Today I learned. There aren't like when you look at neon lights, you'll notice there isn't like a big variety of colors. It's because there's only X number of noble gla- gases that are really uh, easily obtainable. Well, there's only X number of noble gases, period. Yeah. Um, so that's all my cool chemistry stuff that I just kind of arranged and dumped together. I'm not sure if it really had much in common, but it was that's fun. Right. And I enjoyed learning um, how things work, the, the whys behind a few things. Um, I do want to make an announcement that starting... Now we're going to switch to an every two week publishing schedule because just man, this research is tough to keep up with um, at the moment for me. Yeah. Um, so I apologize. This episode's late. That will be Tuesdays as much as we can, as much as I, and especially once we switch to two weeks, it'll be a lot easier to keep to that Tuesday date. Um, so not next Tuesday, but the Tuesday after that, we're going to release our next episode, which will maybe be about birds, and maybe it will be about the weather, and maybe it'll be about animal navigation, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm almost certain it'll be one of those three. Have, okay. have no strong feelings, though. If you do, you can let me know. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.